Okay, so this is going to be an absolutely insane episode of the podcast Shredder Show. We've got Dr. Dwayne Jackson on, and we're going to discuss going through him overcoming kidney failure and kidney disease and what he's done to achieve coming through that, which is a fascinating story. And then we're going to go do a deep dive in terms of weight loss nutrition, the food you should be eating, what you shouldn't be eating, uh, gut health, how you can optimize that. We then also touch into supplementation in terms of creatine for weight loss, creatine overall, fat burners, do they really work and are they BS? Before we begin, make sure you share this episode with a friend, head over and subscribe on iTunes or the podcast app and leave us a review and we'll get tuned into it now. Um, generally are, are pretty good. Their sleep might be a little bit shitty, but in terms of the you know um, partying and stuff like that, I, I really won't take anybody on if I suspect that stuff. Um, in fact, I'll pull off, uh, um, like I'll, I, I have a closet. Do you even I'll see that with some like IFBB pros doing that sort of stuff? Oh yeah, I mean, mental health issues are massive in bodybuilding, right? Like even me, like I, you know, major body dysmorphia. So I think everyone does. You know, so you just keep on getting bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger and bigger and thinking you're tiny. Yeah, the whole thing's, um, it's funny because it's always, it's been a big part of my life after motocross, it was all I did. And, and now it's like something that I'm, I'm helping, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm probably more of a counselor to these guys. Anything. Like given like talking about options, like when I start seeing like heart problems stuff, start talking about other options. Like you know, you think you like you know cycling or running or you know because these like, these guys have the, the drive to do anything. I mean, you could put on that much mass, right? Be that consistent. You know, you're dieting on six thousand calories, stuff like that. You're just so fucking just working all the time, right? Yeah. No, it's uh, it's funny because my role, like we started doing this, I started working with these, working with athletes on this front probably for about two years now, but because I was with another company, ATP Lab, they were um, really- That's where I think I recognize your name from maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so I, 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 worked, I did all their science and all their formulation okay. for four years. They, they didn't, like, they wouldn't even let me talk about my kidney disease. Like that's why if you look at my socials, like there's very little about anything about that from back then. That's and, a prime example of what is wrong with the fitness industry. They said, they said it made it look bad. And I'm like, guys, we can capitalize on this. I'm using your supplements while I'm getting well. Like, I've been using them all the way through my disease. They're like, yeah, what if people think that, uh, you know, you got this from, uh, from the, and I'm like, that's not the way it works, man. People aren't that dumb. Is that because they're a big corporate company and they don't? They aren't actually. Are they not? No, no. They're, uh, they're, they're just, you know, they're three owners and it's privately owned and they have their own lab. And no, it's, uh, it's, it's really just ignorance. So it's like you said, like the, we want to make, if you really look at it, right, the guys that are like, you can tell are well enhanced, tend to not be very healthy. The thing I look at with people is their eyes. Yeah, that's right. It's like yep, their the eyes are like yellow. Yeah. yeah. Clarity of their eyes, the clarity skin. of their skin. Yep. Absolutely. And it's, uh, yeah, so we have, so, so basically, you know, when you say like, what, what, what kills these people, you're like, this, the environment, the whole thing, all the inputs. Stacked together. That's all those inputs. And when you're when you're a pro athlete, doesn't matter if you're you know racing motocross, which is a highly endurance related sport, versus you know a strength sport. Um, you're pushing your physiology right to the edge. Like if you're good at it, you're doing everything it takes to, you know to win. And so the big question, you know, back in the '80s, to Olympic athletes, when Ben Johnson got caught for steroids and whatever, was like, you know, would you take a pill that's going to kill you young to win a gold? And it was like 98, like you know, pretty much unanimous. 98% of them said. Absolutely, without even thinking about it, right? So that's the mentality. So now think about when you when you do throw things like COVID nineteen in and lockdowns with you know, the depression, extra stress, and, yeah. and stress, and then we have the issues. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's multifactorial. It's not it's not just one thing. 
but most of these guys are walking around with dyslipidemia and, and inflammation. So, so you know, pile something on top of that and you've got yourself a problem. Yeah, 100%. It just yeah. stacks up. You know, and then have, have the kidneys that are sort of working, have hypertension, you know, and then load, load on top of that, you know, a, a diet that's very inflammatory that, you know, has no vegetables in it. So talk about pro-inflammatory diet. What, what would you mean by that? Basically, it's diets that lack any vegetable matter or fruit matter or berries or any of these kind of things. You know, those, those are our, and it's funny too, because when I used to post about berries like five, six years ago, I'd be like, you know, nice bowl of antioxidants on top of my protein powder and my yogurt. And people would say, yeah, but how much antioxidant do you get from it? Why don't you just take a supplement, right? But that's the society that's we live in where the, people are like want to supplement the, rather than take the natural raw ingredient, right? And when you're taking the natural raw ingredient, what you're doing is you're microdosing it like it's supposed to be done. You're not taking like a big copious amount that's going to, you know, be in and out. Maybe, maybe it's not even as effective as taking it, you know, microdoses over time like we're supposed to. Multivitamins are a perfect example of that. Like, you know, for years they were one pill and you just mega dose it and then that's it, right? And you piss most of it out. And you piss most of it out. So I tell athletes, you know, you're better off taking, you know, if you're using VitaHD, taking one or two with each meal. So you can, you know, fortify the meal as opposed to like trying to jack it up. You're way better off, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a big problem. And you still see it. Like guys I talk to all the time and they'll still, you'll see their plate and it's like ketchup, white rice, chicken. And it's that whole thing that I suppose where they talk about having all the colors of the rainbow. You're a sort of believer in that. Cause I've looked at some of your, like your content yeah. in terms of Instagram, uh, what you do and like, it's exactly the same as me. It's like trying to have colorful food. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because the colors are those phytonutrients, right? And you got all these polyphenols and all these things that help with gut health. And you got all this synergy because your guts end up, um, you know, running the show. So now you're assimilating nutrients better. You don't have all the, all the, uh, all the inflammatory insults because your guts aren't inflamed, which is where I, I believe most of the inflammatory problems we have now are, are coming from from the guts it's interesting you say that because on the way here this morning that was the one of the main things i wanted to ask you when we come into talking about fat loss in a bit yeah because so. i think that's the, the the big lever that people don't think about yeah they don't it's um it's funny that gut health's been a kind of a priority for a while for for me and for like really the, the dietary sciences but people still aren't kind of following the rules you know um even even the over supplementation like you know using um supplementation over time like where it's you know makes up say like 60 percent or 70 percent or maybe 80 percent of your proteins coming from a protein shake or several protein shakes throughout the day it's great for the supplement industry to, to sell it like that but really at the end of the day you're you're missing all those other nutrients that come with it it's so pure that's why it's great because you can get this you know 100 calories and you got 25 grams of protein whereas if you ate a steak it's going to have you know six seven hundred calories for the same amount of protein depending on the fatness of the steak. So, but within that steak, there's all kinds of benefits, right? And the same within, you know, a plate full of vegetables, which that's the part that blows my mind is that people don't eat a big salad with their meal. Like five cups of lettuce has nothing in it, but good nutrients. So, so I talk about like, you know, macros versus micros. A lot of people are so focused on their macros that they completely forget about the micros. And those micronutrients are, or what you know give us the healthy the healthiness from our diets how so with obviously talking back about your story from the beginning in terms of you did motocross went into bodybuilding and then um you then obviously ran into having kidney issues you want to talk a little bit about that absolutely yeah yeah so 
I uh, yeah, I'd been I'd been uh, racing motocross for years, and uh, I actually actually did my first show um, right before I quit motocross, like in 1992. And then uh, I was quite young; I was still in high school. And uh, then when I quit motocross uh, in at the end of '92 because of injury, um, so many knee, knee reconstructions and arm reconstructions, that uh, um, I really really started to kind of dig into bodybuilding while I was you know doing my undergrad at school and everything. And uh, it was a fun it was a fun time you know it was a really good good thing. But then over time you know when I when I got my job at, at the university in the medical school, it um, it. Uh, it kind of took a turn for its, for the worst, I think, for me because I now had a really good income. Um, I had some free time, believe it or not. Like as a professor, you have a lot more free time. Dangerous combination sometimes. And then, and then my mind—I have a pretty interesting mind. I don't mind pushing the envelope on things. Um, that's why science was fun for me because I always did these had these wacky ideas that got funded well. And uh, yeah, I kind of just pushed things a little bit too far. And then the stress with my job and everything—I had unresolved hypertension. Um, and uh, by the time by the time I knew there was something wrong, I was actually having like visual disturbances from my hypertension. I, and I you know, I worked in, worked just next to the hospital, so I went in and got checked out. And sure enough, I was in a hypertensive crisis. I think my blood pressure was something like two hundred eight over, you know, one eighty two or something. And were you not checking your blood pressure at all during that phase prior to that? Well, it's pretty interesting because I did. Um, I always did. I always checked my blood pressure. In fact, I had several blood pressure devices in my house, and. I must have been in good denial at the time because uh, it was it was my daughter actually that came up to me one day and she she pulled out my blood pressure monitor and said, you know, she's acting like a doctor. She's like, I'm going to do this on you. And it's just an automated one. She put it on, and uh, my blood pressure was like you know 185 <laughs> over like 110 or something like that. So I look at my wife and I go, wow, because my arms are so big now. <laughs> this blood pressure monitor is obviously <laughs> broken. Doesn't fit. Obviously broken. So dead serious. So I bought, I bought a bought a yeah. proper proper cuff and a proper sphig, right? And a stethoscope and i'd been trained in this anyway right so i started measuring it myself and uh and then i started and i said to my wife oh it looks like I, I have like a blood pressure issue here and then I, and i thought you want to know what maybe this cuff isn't really big enough too so then i bought the full gamut of automated uh medical level stuff it was like 2500 bucks for this blood pressure monitor and that's when i finally decided okay this is like this is way worse than i thought it was and now yeah now i'm a big proponent that was that was what 2008 um now I'm a big proponent of uh you know measuring blood pressure and, and staying out of denial throw it on meditate before you do it know that you're in a quasi relaxed state if you can't get in one then you got to figure that out first and then once you check your blood pressure if you're if it's high like do something about it so this is interesting so I, I check my blood pressure every week an interesting story almost slightly different than yours I thought I had a blood pressure issue for about three years but my blood pressure monitor was 40 so I was getting like 160, 170 when I first started doing it. I was like, I've got, again, I've got a problem here I need to address here. So, so like just changed a lot of things I was doing. I started doing hit cardio, loads of stuff like that. And then eventually I ended up stuck between like 130 to 140. October last year, I went in for a minor surgery. Beforehand, they took my blood pressure and it was like 115. I was like, I'm about to go into surgery. I've never had surgery before. My blood pressure is lower than it's ever been. I was like, this, this isn't right. So I was like, I think my blood pressure monitor might be 40. And then when I got another one tested, my blood pressure was fine. So it's like almost the opposite scenario, but probably worth double checking sometimes. Well, that, that's, and that's, the, um, that's probably one of the, the biggest downfalls to the automated systems, right? So if you know how to use, use a proper you know, stethoscope and a, and a sphig, proper cuff, um, then you can always check those things. But 
for the general population, for them to actually learn how to properly take a blood pressure, um, they're, you know, the, the, the systems are pretty good as long as the cuffs fit well. So in terms of your um, kidney issues, in terms of having like almost denial about that, something I see very similar in terms of people with just general overall health and also when it comes to losing weight, why do you think people necessarily have that? And particularly like you're a, like well-known expert in this field in terms of like your knowledge, yet sometimes us with the most knowledge are the people who we want to believe our own shit more than anything else and like believe we don't have any problems. Yeah, it is strange because my lab studied autonom the autonomic nervous system and, and, you know, sympathetic control of blood pressure and blood flow. Um, so the, the dial thing, yeah, it's kind of, like, uh, you know, like we were talking about earlier, it's kind of like a mechanic, right? That has the car that's kind of falling apart and you're wondering like, wait, is this guy a good mechanic or not? You get so focused on, you know, training doctors when you're in the, in the, in the industry I was in at that point before I left the university. Uh, you know, you're, you're so focused on training them and you're so focused on your work and your training that I think you don't really want to know if you have hypertension anyway, uh, or, you know, or, or sickness of any sort, mainly, mainly just because you're, you know, you're, it would kind of slow things down for you. And I know with bodybuilding, like for me, I'm very fortunate because, you know, my parents really forced me to stay in school. And then when I got into university, it clicked so well that I didn't want to leave. Um, so I have this kind of platform that I can talk about and, you know, but so, but a lot of, a lot of athletes don't have another thing. They're all in, they're all in and they went all in and they went all in years ago, you know, quit their job in construction or whatever it is they were doing at the time, started bodybuilding and they're doing well at it. And then if you get told like, you know, you're looking ill or maybe, maybe you check your blood pressure, your face is a little, a little red and I can see your, you know, carotids pulsing out of your neck. Um, I think, I, I think that that's when people say that guy's not my friend and it's, I, it's probably the same pathways. I, I you know, I'm not a, a, uh, you know, a neurophysiologist, but I would say that it's probably some of the similar pathways that people have with, with addiction where, you know, you, 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 um, you know, you're doing something that's probably not helping your health and your family's telling you about your friends are. So you start withdrawing from those people and hang around with the people that support it. And that's, that's part, I think part of that denial cycle that we, we see in athletes, um, in, in, in athletes that are, that are promoting health that when they get sick, because they're like, wait a minute, like, that's not my platform. I, I don't get sick. You know, it's almost admitting some form of weakness or showing vulnerability. Do you think? Yeah. Like being human. Whereas I think a lot of yeah. people in the fitness industry try and like put on this persona that the super invincible. Yeah. 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 Like Superman. Absolutely. Um, that's one thing that, that's nice about getting older. Um, and kidney disease really taught me because it, it was over my forties and I'm 49 now and I got it at the beginning of my forties. So it kind of allowed me to grow out of my thirties where it was like highly egoic and, um, you know, it was all about the grind and driven and all this kind of stuff. And it allowed me to kind of, you know, kind of come into my own as the disease started to take over. Because like I, like I say to a lot of people who, who start experiencing kidney disease, I tell them, you know, Kidney disease is one of those things that like you can deny it, but the more you deny it, the more it's going to bring you down to your knees. And when it does, you got to face the mirror and look at it and say, okay, I got two choices right now, fix this or do my best to fix it or succumb to this and succumbing to kidney disease is death. It's pretty easy to do, you know, by the time you're on dialysis, you miss a week's worth of dialysis sessions. You're, you're pushing the death clock pretty hard. And they're saying there are no bigger consequences than that. No, that's exactly. So for, for me, it was the, um, it was the facing, 
facing the, the reality uh, or the gravity is what my, my nephrologist said. He, he said, like, Dwayne, you, you, you know, you teach medical students about, you know, the impact of this on the body. What's, uh, you know, you understand the gravity of what's going on, right? And that's when that went, like, that's when my stomach just sunk. Cause I, I remember sitting in undergraduate class doing nephro the, 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 the nephrology section of physiology, studying the kidney and whatnot. And I remember looking to my buddy, another bodybuilder beside me. And I go, well, that's one disease I'm never going to get. And, uh, and, and it all flashed back when he said that, you know, he goes, you know, the gravity of something. And I looked, thought back to those classes and I thought, this is going to be a ride, man. This is going to be a ride. But for me, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the kind of guy that pushes through anything, to be honest. Um, I just looked at it as another challenge. I looked at it like a prep. Um, I knew that I was, I knew I needed to get a kidney and I wanted to get a kidney before I was on dialysis, but in Canada, you just can't do that. They, it's almost like a rite of passage. I don't know what it is, but you don't even get an appointment for surgery until you sat on a dialysis machine for a little bit. So, um, that was, that was heavy getting thrown on that machine for sure, because I wasn't prepared for that. I had, I had people lined up to give me a kidney and then, you know, next thing you know, you're getting a catheter in your chest. I imagine psychologically that's when it hit, hits home. Yeah. And I didn't realize how much it hit my, uh, my family. Um, cause for me, I just looked at it. Okay. This, this is the, this is my challenge now. So I got to keep working out. Um, before, before I went on dialysis, I knew that like, I knew how to put on muscle and I knew I had to, because I wasted so much at the front end, trying to lose, lose body mass, like muscle and fat, um, to get, to get my weight down so that my met metabolic rate was down. So I wasn't taxing my kidney any more than I need kidneys any more than I needed to. But then as you go into like dialysis, right, you now you start realizing, okay, I have to put on muscle because the dialysis machine is going to use those BCAAs like mad. It's going to chew them up. We know that. And you'll, you'll start wasting. And then that's the, that's the crux of kidney disease when you, when you actually get frailty. So for me, the big, the big thing was actually trying to maintain mass, but for different reasons. Now I was applying all my bodybuilding knowledge, the healthy side of it, um, to my kidney disease so that I would have this pool of amino acids that this machine could chew up so that when I was done with that stupid thing, as soon as possible, that I could recover from the surgery and be here today, you know, living my life like normal and, and it worked, but it took focus. What component do you think nutrition plays in kidney disease? Oh, it's, it's, it, it is the whole idea behind it, especially once you have it. So, you know, in terms of high protein diets and all that kind of stuff, there really aren't any problem. There's lots, there's lots of data that show that, you know, you're not going to throw your kidneys for a loop with a high protein diet, but within the realms of high protein diets. And if you're into bodybuilding, the blood pressure problems that usually are, uh, you know, accommodate the, the, the body mass that you have, um, end up kind of synergizing with this high protein diet so that your kidneys actually do get taxed because kidneys are like a battery. Um, everybody loses about 1% of their function every year. And that's why, you know, if you live long enough, you'll have some weak kidneys. But if you're taxing your kidneys with, you know, a lot of metabolic activity, um, all the time, and they're not quite functioning as well as they were before it's, uh, and, and this is how we describe it in nephrology is it, it's like a runaway train it is once, once you start the process of kidney disease, it's really just a matter of time when you're going to be in failure. And so, you know, as someone who has like FSGS, um, like I do, and that's kind of the bodybuilder strength training version of kidney disease. Um, it's something that can, you know, once it starts, once the ball starts rolling, you could be a month and on a machine. If you keep things under control, then you can be, you know, 
like I was like seven years without touching touching a, a dialysis machine. It's almost like a, it's a compounding effect, though, isn't it? The more it goes on. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, if you've got kidney issues, which a lot of people don't know they do, right? You don't know until you're in like stage four. Like I was stage three before I even started feeling things. Around stage four, you start tasting ammonia. So the breakdown products of, of uh, you taste protein. it in your mouth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's horrible. And uh, and that's when you know that you're not getting rid of urea. Uh, and the urea is coming from, you know, the urea. It's, it's, it, you should be peeing it out. But because you're not peeing, if you may be peeing a lot, but you may not be isolating those particular compounds and they're building up in your blood, then you start tasting it in your breath and the blood goes through your lungs. Can that be a sign when people have really bad breath then? Not so much. Um, I mean, if someone smells like actual, it, it smells like ammonia, it smells like chemical, like like chicken shit at a chicken yeah. farm, ammonia, like that kind of stuff, right? Um, then yeah, I'd be asking some questions. But when you get to that point, you kind of know there's a problem because yeah. you don't feel very good. You're too far down the line. Yeah, you don't feel well. You think differently when your uh, urea levels get really high. and um, Yeah, but again, denial, you know, can play a good good role in, you know, making sure that you eat a lot so you don't taste that ammonia. And I did a few of those things. A few, obviously now coming out the other end of that, obviously you've had the tra transplant and everything like that's all gone well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been great. Um, I mean, it's not... The, probably the biggest awareness thing I should talk about real quick is that it's not a cure. Everything's get it popped in and you're all good. They also think dialysis for the most part is, is you know, you plug yourself in to your, your charger for, you know, four hours and then you get off and you're perfect. It's, it's also like just a thing. It's a life sustaining device. It's not really a, a cure. Um, and you do take, you know, these, these mass amounts. I, like on the way here, I'd take a handful of, uh, you know, these, these anti-rejection meds, which are, for someone who's interested in strength training and whatnot, they're all mTOR inhibitors. So I'm really interested to see what I can do with these on board. But yeah, you take a handful of them and you take another, some more at night and that's the rest of your life. It's about 3000 bucks for this stuff a month. It's not, not a cheap endeavor then. Not cheap. We, you know, uh, and our, our, uh, you have to have a medical insurance plan to cover it. Um, and if you don't, a lot of, um, which a lot of people don't, uh, there, we do have uh, provisions in Ontario through Trillium and whatnot that cover the, uh, Cover the, cover the cost of the meds. Cool. Coming to more on top of the podcast in terms of sort of uh, optimizing nutrition for weight loss and people getting in shape. One of the things we've alluded to in terms of, I think there's a lot of things people don't think about necessarily when it comes to getting in shape and losing weight. And I think inflammation generally overall systemically and also in terms of like your digestion is a big thing that people don't look at. Is there anything you would say people need to try and identify in terms of their nutrition or lifestyle they're doing? That could be something that's maybe putting the handbrake on their fat loss and what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm a big proponent of, of, of high nutrition. So really focusing on, you know, macros are easy to plug in, right? But focusing on getting those micronutrients um, through, you know, berry, eating berries, uh, you know, a lot of uh, leafy greens, um, making sure you got lots of colors on your plate, uh, which is really funny because my mother did that, you know, for my whole youth. And she used to actually complain if I was making, you know, just like broccoli and chicken. She'd be like, like, where's the carrots and the cauliflower to make it all different colors? She didn't know why she was saying that, but it is, it is true. I mean, these colors come from the phytonutrients that uh, not only give us, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, vitamin sources and whatnot and minerals, but also with, within that phytonutrition, um, they're kind of the driver of gut health. A lot of, a lot of for, for instance, the fiber and berries you know, doesn't digest. So it goes way down into that, that, that large intestine where it can then, you know, be a prebiotic 
for for the for the uh, the, the colonization of all those bacteria that help us. And the number one thing I see with everybody I coach right now is when I look at their diet and their symptoms, they're all gut health. They're all gut health problems. What would be an example of a symptom that would be related to gut health that you've seen or you see frequently? Yeah, so, so right now um, uh, I've got a classic case in my roster where it's like, you know, gas, uh, they have a lot of GERD, so a lot like heartburn, um, reflux, uh, inflammation in joints, uh, inflammation in the gut uh, when they eat certain things many of the, of the certain things, uh, you know, they can't digest them. They find that, you know, they're, they're seeing like solid food in their stool, mucus in their stool, um, feeling, you know, feeling uh, like they have to, you know, go to the washroom all the time, uh, you know, take a poo and uh, not having anything really come out. And that's inflammation. Any, anybody who's eaten, a, went to an all-inclusive in Mexico and eaten Mexican food and drank for a couple of days, that's a good, that's a good sign of, you know, inflammation when you're sitting on the toilet and, Things aren't really coming out, but it feels like you got to go. So that's that's a symptom that I see a lot of times is just, just poor bowel movements, um, poor sleep, kind of comes into the play there too. And when you start putting it all together and you know using it like a Sherlock Holmes mystery, you can certainly see very quickly that okay, so this this person doesn't have a lot of you know uh, phytonutrition in their in their diet. Their fiber is you know less than five grams in the day, where I, I you know I tell them to push it up toward forty grams. Um, and as soon as you start kind of Reestablishing those things for these people, they see miraculous results, and it's pretty quick. Fiber is an issue when you mentioned that in terms of that. What would you say? Obviously, you can't general rule of thumb. What would you say most people recommend you would need? Obviously, a lot of the guys you're working with are a lot bigger than probably the average individual. But I think fiber is one of the things people don't often look at, particularly when they have digestive issues. Yeah, so so we know pretty well from the science that you know you should be getting at least thirty grams a day, um, basically between thirty and forty grams of fiber a day, a mixture between soluble and insoluble fiber. Um, you don't have to overthink it, really. If you if you're eating vegetables, and you know you're you're having some sort of uh, fibrous like for, for me, like I like Ezekiel bread. Um, you know, if you don't eat bread, if you don't eat wheat, then that's another story. But um, it's nice when you can eat all the different fibers, including wheat, uh, because then you're, you know, you're getting a much more abundance of different types of fiber in your diet without having to really think about it. You, you start tracking it. You're like, oh, I'm eating like 60 or 70 grams of fiber a day kind of thing. In terms of the inflammation with the gut side of things, what do you think people should try and avoid specifically? Booze. <laughs> specifically. Do you think um, that's the, big, the worst one? Yeah, copious amounts of alcohol seem to really inflame the gut. Um, My parents need to listen to this. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you, um, yeah. So, so, uh, so, so, booze is one of them. Like, I, I tend to try and get people to really get off that. And if they can't, then we've got another problem on our hands that rears its head, which is nice. You can point it out to people, like you know, if we're having trouble stopping this this behavior, then that's another thing you need to get under control. That's not part of this this treatment. Um, but yeah, so so uh, alcohol is one of them. Um, heavy, heavy meat, uh, consumption, uh, and then we know it changes the microbiota, uh, heavy meat consumption without buffering it with lots of green vegetables, uh, colorful vegetables, um, uh, you know, fibers, these kind of things that actually protect the gut. That's where we, that, like, you know, that's where those high protein diets start to change things. And the reason why people with elimination diets where they say, okay, I'm just going to eat meat and nothing else where they get a benefit from that really is because they've knocked out, they, they have poor gut health. And so they've knocked out all these things that exacerbate their gut health. They're actually healthy instead of rebuilding 
uh, their gut health after they've done an elimination diet, coming back and reintroducing foods so that they can actually build up their microbiota to have something that's robust enough that when you have, you know, a piece of bread or something, you're not going to get distension and inflammation and problems like that. I think that's one of the big issues you see, I guess, with a lot of people in the fitness community or bodybuilders when they just live on the, the plain chicken and white rice diet in terms of digestion. Well, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's multifactorial because when you start doing that, that's, that's common. I did it, you know, um, uh, when you, when you start into those diets, uh, it does work. They do work. Um, they do work really well for physique. And there is a point in a bodybuilder's, you know, uh, prep that we do have to start cutting things out that may cause bloat and whatnot. So that, you know, the last several weeks before the competition, there's some necessary evils. But at the front end, if you're getting lots of good fats in, and lot, which is another thing that's cut out of the diet a lot, you know, omegas and whatnot in their diet. Uh, if you get a lot of good fats in, you get a lot of good vegetables in at the very beginning, then you're going to assimilate those nutrients so much better anyway with good gut health that, you know, you're going to utilize those pro, all that protein that you're eating. You're going to utilize those carbohydrates that you're eating. And they're not going to, you know, be you know, staying stagnant in your guts because you've got slow transit time of the food through the, through the actual digestive system. What's your opinion on gluten? If if you have celiac disease, don't eat it. Like um, wheat's an interesting one because you know there's 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 this whole thing that well in North America you know wheat's a major export and but yeah, it is. It's what we grow here, and if you're not if you're not actually like gluten intolerant, it shouldn't really bother you. Um, and that's like, so for example, we see this a lot. We see gluten intolerance in people with IBS, right? And because they have inflamed, inflamed bowels, uh, then it can be a trigger, but that should also be a sign that so once you, once you have them tested and everything else, they don't have any, there's no allergies. They have sensitivities, which is a completely different thing. Like when you have a gluten allergy, absolutely. You have to stay away from wheat, but if you don't have a gluten allergy, and everything's going fine with your digestion uh, in terms of like, you know, um, um, not having inflammatory responses to, to the food that are allergic, re allergic reactions, then you should look at that more like a, you know, I need to actually figure out how to fix my guts so that I can actually assimilate this nutrient, not pushing wheat. You don't have to eat if you don't want. And if it causes problems, you don't, you don't really have to, but it does tell you that if, you know, if you don't, if you don't have celiac disease, and you're, you're, you're getting these major, you know, reactions from eating wheat, then there's probably something imbalanced in your microbiota. And in that situation, how would you go uh, identifying and addressing that? Yeah, so first of all, uh, so I actually recommend, uh, I, I pretty much insist that everybody I work with get blood work right off the bat. And then if they've complained about, you know, having gluten allergies and this kind of stuff, I'll ask them, like, have you been tested? And if they've been tested and they do have an actual allergy to it, um, you know, so they're seeing um, immune responses when they eat it, then we stay away from it. Absolutely. Um, people that are sensitive to just have sensitivities to it. I also stay away from it until we reestablish the gut. Then we try to reintroduce it. And if they still have a sensitivity, then we take it out of the diet. But, you know, each one of these kind of um, uh, food groups, I guess you could call them, uh, they all, they all, they're all tools. They're all, they're all part of the kind of like, you know, the complete toolbox that you have to select from to create health. And so if you're knocking things out that um, have a major you know, proportion, especially in your society of what they eat, then automatically you're gonna be limiting a whole bunch of other nutrients that are gonna come from that kind of 
group of foods. So I tend I tend to get try to you know test people with it. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll I start people on a really low FODMAP diet, which then will include like low gluten, everything else, or no gluten. For anyone listening, what's the low FODMAP diet? Just yeah. So yeah. So so it, so in in in, es, in essence, uh, FOD, FODMAP uh, uh, these FODMAP FODMAPs are just. Um, they're, they're, they're all these different carbohydrates that our body tends to tends to have trouble digest, digesting, and they include um, you know things things like uh, oligosaccharides and all these things that we see in like um, a good example actually of, of, of one would be like a sugar alcohol. Um, these things actually are they have they have their own role in our microbiota, to be honest, but people have sensitivities and they get too much of them. So if anybody's eating a, a protein bar full of sugar alcohols, I had a couple of them you'll notice like your guts kind of get a little rumbly. And that's because these are not like relatively non-digestible carbohydrates. And so they play a role in creating short chain fatty acids in the, uh, in the, in the large intestine and you know, they'll put off gases and whatnot. So you get this gassy kind of feeling from them. So what we do is uh, when we, when we eliminate uh, uh, these foods, um, we end up having, you know, a relatively good abundance of, of, um, of different uh, vegetables we can still get our hands on, but they're, they're, they, they're, they're, they lack sensitivities. They lack uh, uh, the elicitation of, of, of um, sensitivities in people. So if we keep those low, right at the beginning, then you can start to kind of pick where the sensitivities are and you, 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 know, you eat mindfully. You sit down and you eat, and I tell them the journal, and tell me, like, how did you feel after that meal? And then that's how we can kind of pick out, okay, this doesn't work, this does work. How do we make these things work in the context of what's going on? After about six weeks, um, then you can start reintroducing, uh, you know, regular food. And when you do that, um, you tend to see that people actually don't have the sensitivities that they thought they had because now they're starting to think clearly, okay, I'm going to add in bread to my, to my meals, like a high quality, a high quality bread, Spr uh, sprouted, you know, sprouted grains bread. And then they note, okay, how did I feel? What did my poop look like? What did my guts feel like? What did my head feel like? And then once you've done that, you, you, I, I tend after six to 12 weeks, I've had people on, you know, full mixed meals with, you know, the array of everything we need to have in there. Maybe take out a few things like onions and garlic cause problems for some people. Um, and then, you know, they end up having many more, much more variety to choose from with much better micronutrition that they can pull from that. So what you said there was fascinating. It's one of the most important things I try and explain to people with importance of like self-awareness and actually being consciously aware of like how your body feels with everything. So when it's working out or when it's how you're reacting to food, your sleep, going to the toilet. And I think so many people in society are completely oblivious to this. And also it comes down to the fact that I think so many people just think it's normal to have terrible digestion. And they're just used to being in this constantly inflamed state with gas and bloating and or they can't go to the toilet. And it just frustrates me that people think that's normal when it's not supposed to be like that. Exactly, that's right. Um, that's the same thing that, uh, I, I've found too, that, you know, most people don't even address their gut health. I'll look at their diet and I'll say like, so how do you, how do your guts feel? Like, do you, do you, you know, do you take a normal poo every morning at the same time? Is it, you know, does it look normal or is it a big pile of mess? Is it a big mess with mucus and stuff in it? Does it have food in it? And it, it's really funny at first when you ask them to do those things, they kind of get grossed out and you're like, but like, this is the part of the whole mindful thing is like, you know, digestion starts here and ends out here. So you should probably be aware of every step along the way when you eat. Um, yeah, no, so I really promote mindful eating. Um, and 
I believe that social media has been great for mindful eating because everybody wants to build their plates to look really, really healthy. And so I tell people like, take pictures of your food because it makes, make sure it looks like a really nice picture, like really bright and everything's organized. It's a really good hit. Right. And, and when they're organized in, in their food, they start thinking about it. Right. And then they start going, well, I got to buy some nice shiitake mushrooms or I got to buy some, you know, to make that look really nice on the side. I got to get more variety in it. Because when you take a picture of chicken or rice, it actually looks kind of depressing. It's, it's, you might as well have it on a paper plate. It's like a prison meal. Like, <laughs> right? It's like gray. That's what my wife used to call my food, yeah. prison, prison food. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the mindful eating thing is really important right from the fact that like you actually know what you're eating too. How, how many people pull open a cupboard, reach in, grab a handful of chips, eat it, and don't even realize they just ate, you know, a couple hundred calories of non-constructive garbage. And and so, so building your meals out, you know, making sure that you've got all your, all your components so that, you know, you're happy with it. Take a picture of it. See if you'd be impressed by that picture. And then when you sit down and eat it, think about how lucky you are or how fortunate you are to be able to have this variety of food while you're eating it. And all of a sudden these foods that people thought were like, you know, non-palatable become really, really important to them. Next thing you know, they're buying organic and then they're, you know, they start to think about when they go shopping. And then they're getting excited to go shopping because they're going to a new place. And this place is going to have, you know, X, Y, Z in stock. And, and for, so for me, it's, 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 it's a behavior that you kind of got to get into. And if you, if you haven't got that mental um, fortitude to kind of get into your food, no coaching is going to help you because you, you, you have to own it. I think that's what's – a couple of things that you said really hit home to me because since I've been in Canada the last few weeks – one of my favorite hobbies, it sounds really weird, is going around to all the different supermarkets, like grocery stores, we call them supermarkets in the UK, because it's just different, it's got different yep. stuff, and I like looking at different things and trying different stuff. But like that's the important thing for people to make like long-term change, and something I like to say is that if something's not sustainable, it's not gonna be attainable for you long-term, and that's where it comes down to, like like you said, in terms of like taking photos of the food and making it fun so you enjoy it, and then I think there's a lot to also be said in terms of if you make your food like taste really good so you're actually salivating before you eat the meal, that makes a huge difference in terms of improving like digestion because it starts with the mouth. Yeah, yeah, it starts in your brain, right? Mm. Yeah, because literally- If you actually want to eat it. Absolutely, like all that amylase and, and that lingual lipase starts to kind of release in your mouth, you know, so you get these carbohydrate breaking en enzymes to break down and you've also got like lipase to break down fats in your, in your mouth. And that all begins, and you get gut motility, like you'll start getting, the, you know, uh, your mouth will you get salivate, you'll feel your guts kind of moving around, it's getting ready for this, right? And if you're not mindfully going through the process of eating, none of that stuff even knows it's coming down the pipe. And so you're right. You, you have, you have to be, you know, I, I mean, food's so important yet. We grab a burger and drive around eating it mindlessly, Mind, completely mindlessly. So much, actually so not present for anything, you, you know, people get in rear enders when they're eating a hamburger because they're thinking about where they're headed to more so than they are what they're doing. And I think. It's, it's i'm a bit weird i like watching people sometimes so i went for dinner at this like barbecue place i think it was like lone star texas grill or something it wasn't particularly amazing and there was a guy there who's probably like 500 pounds or something like that and i i tend to watch people sometimes to just just to see what they do habitually and the guy was just sitting there mindlessly just eating and it's these small habits are what drag people down and basically ruin their lives because they don't even have conscious control of what they're doing and probably even realize what they're doing at that time or even enjoy what they're doing but it's almost on like a robot mode of like tortilla chip to mouth for like half an hour non-stop until it's gone and i think it comes down to what we we're talking about earlier in terms of self-awareness that people are becoming aware of 
like what they do and like maybe the trappings of where they're making mistakes. So like for me, for example, home in Dubai, if I'm on a diet and I'm trying to lose weight, I can't keep dark chocolate in the fridge because every time I go and open the fridge door, I end up having a piece of dark chocolate. And I realize like every two days, I'm eating a hundred gram bar of dark chocolate. I'm like, you're going through way too much of this. And I think it's where people need to become self-aware of identifying where they actually have, um, I don't know if issue is a right word, but it's almost like, again, not having cognitive bias, the same terms as like the, the kidney disease. I mean, yep. like, we can make us, we can justify anything to ourselves. They'll be like, oh, I've trained really hard today, I can have an extra piece of chocolate. But you do that like four times a day, you then eat the whole bar in like a day and a half, and you're like, mm, this is where I've got a problem. 100%. Yeah, the, uh, it, pretty much anything in life that you want to focus on starts with mindfulness. It starts with like being present while you're doing it. And we, we eat like it's kind of a thing that we do like every day, right? It's something you need to do. And uh, yeah, like when you're talking about the shopping and all that kind of stuff and how that all comes into play, um, I think what a big problem comes in is, you know, influencers um, like yourself and everything else, right, can influence people so much that if someone takes, you know, a bias to a certain influencer, you know, they may change their whole diet to eat, eating raw heart and, and, and <laughs> nobody in particular, but, but, yes, but, you know, you know, eat, eat, eat and just, just eating meat, you know, or, or, or just eating, you know, one food group without considering any of the other ones. And that's to me really mindless because it's the blind eating the blind. It's completely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so like you said, get excited to go into the supermarket. Pick one that's really cool. We're so fortunate in North America and in, you know, in Europe to be able to you know, have these options. We also have to consider, though, you know, worldwide, there's people that don't have those options. You know, and, I, and my wife pointed that out. You know, she's, she's, um, a big, uh, she's a nursing professor, and she's big on you know, considering kind of the full environment around you in the world. And, you know, when I'm on there posting, like, you know, these, these steaks that I'm having for dinner that are 58 bucks and they're Wagyu and, and, you know, there's, you know, I have all organic food in front of me. There's places that just don't have the meat available to do that. And as a good coach, we need to be able to flex and, you know, take a pivot and help those people also. And so there's so many biases out there. And those biases really, I think, do a detriment to, you know, people who are trying to get ahead when they, they don't have the education in the area. I think that's one of my big pet hates with the fitness industry is the the bullshit marketing like which is one of the things we talked about for a podcast or something else similar to that and it's like everyone's trying to push an agenda in terms of like keto vegan diets whatever and like this is the only way it's like there's multiple ways to skin a cat there's multiple ways for people to lose weight i think it comes down to ultimately what that person enjoys doing and i try to explain to people it's like do you never want to eat carbohydrate? And I love bread, so like the ketogenic diet is just moronic. Like yeah. if it's like, try things if you want to try them, but don't be sold into things because the same as there's people like influencers on social media who promote a vegan diet, yet they got in shape they're in using anabolic steroids and then eating a high protein bodybuilding diet for 10 years <laughs> and now they're a vegan. And it's like, mm, it's, it's like uh, the snake oil salesman almost. Oh, I mean, yeah. Now, now that everybody's got a platform, it's it, there's a lot of snake oil out there. Yeah, the um, it's it's really yeah, it's it's really really it's it's fundamental for people to actually take control of something themselves anyway, and not passing the control off to someone else and saying, well, I'm following this particular diet, because like you said, the best diet is the one someone can stick to, in terms of weight loss and fat loss. And the other thing we do know um, that's may sound contrary to what we're saying, but it's not really. 
um, is that, you know, at the, at the very fundamental level, it's calorie restriction they need to have in order to, you know, sustain some sort of weight loss over time. It also has to be palatable for the person so that they can actually sustain that diet over time. And it's most important at the very beginning for them to actually lose weight than it is for them to pick, I'm going to be a vegan, ketogenic guy, whatever. It's more important for them to actually just lose weight. And it'll actually create huge differences in their blood, their blood work just by losing body fat. And I'm talking about, you know, if they're a McDonald's eater and they actually cut their McDonald's down by, you know, whatever percentage they need to do to lose a couple pounds a week, they will get healthier just by the weight loss alone. But now if you can get them into the good foods and everything else so that they actually get some micronutrition from it, because we do know that a lot of, well, all of the processed foods that we eat have a whole bunch of macronutrition and a whole little of micronutrition. And the research in obesity show us that, you know, in obesity, you get uh, dysbiosis. So you end up with like, you know, dysfunctional gut health. And a lot of this has to do with these high, high, high calorie diets that have low, low, low micronutrition. So you end up with a situation where someone's very highly inflamed, like you mentioned. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're gaining weight very rapidly and they still don't even feel satisfied with what they're eating because there's very little satiety in this food because of the lack of the nutrition that's you know, in, these, in these particular products. So it's ironic, they're almost like super indulging calories yet also malnourished it is we no. We, that's that's why we're seeing vitamin deficiencies in obesity now think about this for a minute you know there's people that are consuming in the upwards of like three four thousand calories you know a day more than they should be eating but they're malnourished in terms of when we measure vitamin status they actually have like a very poor vitamin status that shouldn't exist if you're eating copious amounts of food you should have a very very high vitamin status now, it's not to say that, you know, that, that all, even all the food we have now that's, or even organic is, you know, as nutrient dense as it was back in like the 1918s and 1920s. Um, but you're, if you're not eating those things, if you're not eating fresh foods unprocessed and you're only eating processed food, you will be malnourished despite, despite the fact being overconsumptive in, in calories. What's your opinion on uh, fasting for improving gut health or for, uh, maybe for weight loss? Yeah, so so fasting's neat. Um, I used it a lot when I had kidney when I had the kidney disease because it it, uh, it allows your body to actually not have to deal with metabolism or at least the level of meta metabolism you need when you're eating over that sixteen hours or whatever is that you're fasting. Um, we do know that that fasting, like the actual uh, weight loss effects of fasting, now are not. It's not magic. You can't just eat whatever you want during that eight hour window. It's 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 for the most part, people have lowered their calories because <laughs> they fasted. Um, Fasting is kind of like gamifying to me, um, gamifying the, the diet, because once you learn to be hungry, then it becomes a kind of a game, like how long can I go without wanting to eat? And, and you can go a long time. If you've, if you, even after a week of fasting for 16 hours, you can go quite a long time without eating. So I tend to, I tend to um, promote fasting in people that um, have trouble controlling their, their appetite more so than anything else. Um, I do, I do believe that it's uh, it's a good thing for gut health for people, uh, for people that are dealing with infl chronic inflammation of the gut, because just because you've lowered the amount of food that's going to be going through there throughout the day. Um, but in terms of, in terms of it being a weight loss agent, um, it's, it's just a calorie restrictive, uh, tool. 
Agreed. And it's, uh, it's another one of those things, I think, where people get married to certain tribes of, like, fasting, keto diets, vegan, whatever. Like, they're all underpinned, as you said, by people being in a calorie deficit. It's the only reason people lose weight. Yeah, you're not going to food group. No. Like, you know what I mean? Even keto, like, and I've done ketogenic diets, and I've had good luck with a ketogenic diet for fixing some gut health issues I had with kidney disease. You produce a lot of TMAO and stuff, uh, um, these toxic compounds uh, when, when you have kidney disease. And, uh, and, and so uh, fasting actually allows you to kind of let things rest for a little while. And, and uh, I found it worked really, really well. Ketogenic with fasting worked really, really well. But as soon as I got my gut health back on track, I actually got back, back to doing things normally because over time, even though I was, I was in a, um, you know, a, a hypercaloric ketogenic diet, over time, you just stop eating as much. You just, you, um, you kind of get sick of eating uh, you know, three eggs and a piece of steak and some nuts for breakfast. It's just, it's just over time, it starts to become redundant, monotonous. redundant. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Every food in terms of food choices, in terms of nutrition, do you have certain foods you prefer in terms of say for protein, carbs, and fats that you <clears throat> try and lead people into? And in sorry, can you ask that again? So like, do you have certain foods that you prefer for like protein, fats, and carbs? Yeah. So, yeah. So I, in terms of, um, in terms of like the macro nutrition, yeah, for protein, I, 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 like, I like to mix it up. So between fish, chicken and beef, um, I usually, uh, count mainly the meat sources of protein, um, to their, to their protein count. If they're, if they're a bodybuilder, uh, because they're not going to get enough legumes and whatnot in their diet to, to actually satisfy anything. Um, and in terms of carbohydrates, um, it, I run the gamut, uh, you know, potatoes, sweet potatoes, uh, rice, even brown rice, and it just depends on the tolerance of the individual. Um, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna recommend. Um, even pasta for some athletes is really really a good thing, and so so I'll even you know if they don't have any gluten intolerances or whatnot, um, we'll even work with pasta once in a while depending on if they're a, um, an aesthetic athlete versus say a performance athlete. Do you ever use refined carbohydrates with people? More processed stuff. Yeah. So so with our uh, yeah. So in the in the. Uh, the i guess the aesthetic population um we get some good good luck with you know u- utilizing uh, carbohydrates like you know so you know using a carbohydrate um, formulation um you know with waxy maize or you know um cluster dextrin or these kind of things uh you can kind of there's some value in those around the workout window absolutely um we see it you know during workouts um it's great for also for hydration having those car- carbohydrates on board um but i don't tend to push those in the general pop um, the general population wants supplements really bad. So it's easy enough to give them the things they need. And, uh, and, and when it comes to like foodstuffs, I really try to get them on whole foods. And then if we need to plug in a protein supplement somewhere because they just can't consume that much food, then, then it has a very, very high value. And in terms of like healthy fats, it's one of the things I think you alluded to earlier. And I think that's something that a lot of people step over because they don't, they, they associate eating fat with getting fat and also the extra calories from that. I don't think you understand the importance of that. How does fat, uh, fat intake influence fat loss? Oh, it's, uh, I mean, if you eat too much of it, you're going to have problems. doesn't matter how healthy it is or not. Um, and it's easy to eat a lot. It's easy to get a lot of calories from fat, but in terms of, uh, in terms of like, you know, using eating fatty fish with high omega three and all these kind of things and, and getting rid of, you know, seed oils and, 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 you know, these vegetable oils and all these things that are high, very high in omega-6 uh, that, you know, cause these inflammatory ratios to get thrown off. Um, I definitely, uh, the, the inflammatory effects, uh, the anti-inflammatory effects of healthy fats uh, 
play an integral role in the in the actual health status of your gut. And so um, I'm big on you know getting getting those healthy fats up. We usually do it through you know using a supplement um, at first so that we can get the person going. If they don't like eating fish, then I tend to kind of really push push you know obviously an omega three supplement. But uh, it's the infl inflammation or the anti-inflammation you get from these fats that's really important, as well as the hormonal regulation that you get from fats because we need fats to produce, you know, testosterone, estrogen, estrogens from that testosterone and whatnot all kind of come from that cascade from fat and cholesterol. So um, people who cut out fats tend to have like hormonal imbalances and, uh, and, and more inflammation than people who actually you know, utilize healthy fats. Do you think there's a difference between men and women needing different fat ratios because i think from my own experience i've seen that women sometimes do slightly better with maybe a slightly higher fat diet than maybe men comparatively to carbohydrates yeah i um what i try to do is i try, try to treat them both the same and uh you know men or women i start with a, a basic a basic diet I, you know keep the fats in fact my diets usually start out as you know almost like 33 percent of each macro and then we start to balance kind of play with them what i have noticed is um, people with high triglycerides and whatnot tend not to be uh, or tend to be more sensitive to saturated fats. We have trouble getting their triglycerides down, have trouble getting their liver function, you know, better. Um, and as soon as we shift from a very high saturated fat diet to these, you know, polyunsaturated fatty acids that we find in fish and whatnot, um, I see that fat thing change. If you're eating high sat fats, um, you know, saturated fats are great. Um, I, I don't have any problem with them, even butters and, and, and red meats and whatnot. But you do have to balance it with these polyunsaturated fats. And I think that's where there's kind of a discrepancy we see in the, the male-female kind of cascade. Um, especially with females, um, it really depends also on, on the amount of muscle mass they have and how well they process carbohydrates, right? And what you're finding probably is when you pull out some fat in, in say, um, or sorry, put in some fat in a female diet, you're going to pull out a little bit of carbohydrate. And that's, that's, um, that's another story in itself. So, so really at the end of the day, the, the whole fat thing is important for both populations and, uh, and, and, you know, I guess teasing out the, the sensitivity of each individual is kind of the, the big thing, um, overall. Makes sense. One big question I think that is probably the most common question I get every day on Instagram, for example, would be in regards to creatine. And I, I know what your answer could be into this anyway, but, um, I just want to ask it. What's your thoughts on creatine and using that in a weight loss phase and during a diet? And also interesting with kidney disease, would, did you use creatine whilst still training? And what was the situation with that? Yeah, so creatine, um, so creatine runner all the time. Like, I, yeah, dieting or not, it doesn't cause subcutaneous water retention, contrary to what people think. Yeah, you're going to gain some weight when you're taking it, like mass, um, but that's just going to be water shifts intracellularly from from extracellularly so so in other words it's not gonna be water it's not gonna be water under the skin that people that people see but actually water within the muscle cells themselves and that's good that's a good thing nice hydrated muscle cells um but uh in terms of kidney kidney function and whatnot uh the only the only kicker with with uh creatine uh with kidney function is that it does turn into creatinine and so people who have weak kidneys end up having higher creatinine levels when they take creatine. So I avoid it. I just avoid it because I do my bloods regularly. And when I do my bloods, I don't want to see, you know, really high creatinine levels that are false, false positives because those trigger a whole other set of events when you have a transplant. 
But during my, uh, when I had kidney disease, I actually, um, I actually used uh, creatine. Probably not, uh, I didn't do five grams a day, but I was probably doing five grams four days a week. Interesting question. So I, I know you know Milos Oktov as well. So I know Milos has done some seminars and he's been on the podcast a couple of times as well. So it's worth checking out his episodes. He's a big advocate of creatine, but almost like super dosing it, which I tried for a while and noticed no difference other than my blood work was like massively skewed. And he says between like 20 to 40 grams he recommends a day. What are your thoughts on using higher doses? Do you think if an individual is bigger and has more muscle mass, maybe they could warrant slightly more? Yeah, well, it's a, that's a tough call because really at the end of the day, you know, the data tell us that five to 10 grams, um, you know, daily will keep super compensation of, of uh, creatine up. So you'll have more in there than you would if you didn't take it. Um, but these, you know, bodybuilders tend to eat a lot of meat. And if you eat a lot of meat, that'll be scaled kind of with your body size. So there's no data that I know of that show that, you know, super compensating for, for creatine works better than, you know, using five to 10 grams a day. In fact, three and a half grams has been shown, three grams has been shown to actually keep creatine levels up in skeletal muscle. Awesome. That's, um, I think that's one of the big misconceptions with creatine is water retention. I think that's one of the things that people have this like married idea in terms of a lot of these concepts that, that used to be on, I don't know, social media or even old supplement companies in terms of like maybe even like creatine loading. Like, is that something you'd recommend or would you recommend people just go straight in a steady dose? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So when creatine came out in the nineties, like early nineties, um, we all loaded, we all did, you know, 20 grams a day for the first week and, you know, tapered it down. Um, it does work. Um, creatine, like, you know, creatine loading does work. It gets the, the creatine levels up faster, but they don't get up any higher. So really, um, you know, taking five grams a day over several weeks, you're going to be perfectly fine. I think one of the big misconceptions now is because we started putting in pre-workouts all the time is that, you know, you have to take it before your workout and actually you'll probably absorb a little more of it if you take it post-workout. Um, so there's that. And then the other, the other one is that, you know, that creatine can only, you only need to take it on your days that you're training. So, but you actually should be taking it every single day. If you want to keep those super compensated levels up, it shouldn't just be like training aid because it's uh, like beta alanine. Um, beta alanine works by increasing carnosine in the muscle. And so it takes time for that to build up like a month, you know, at 1.6 grams a day or whatever. Um, but, uh, creatine is the same way. You're not, you're not, you'll reap some benefits from like high blood creatine levels for, you know, doing quick, you know, adding phosphate to ADP so you get ATP. But, um, the real effects, the actual like muscle building effects and the, the muscle bloating effects that we get from it, uh, the psychoplasmic uh, hyper, hypertrophy you get from it, that all comes from over time. So really it's not one of those things you just take once and you go, oh yeah, I can really feel this, you know, this creatine working. Having gone down the supplement route, is there anything naturally you'd recommend that aids with fat loss? Naturally, in terms in terms of in terms of like fat burners, are you yeah, like if all people talk about things like L-carnitine and things like that, for example. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I would say I would say that uh, if we're going to talk about fat uh, burners, fat burners don't exist. <laughs> um, I mean, when we were taking ephedrine and you know caffeine and aspirin every day, that was probably a fat burner that worked quite well. Um, but in terms of what we have today, yeah, fat burners don't really exist. But you can optimize. Uh, optimize your, you know, your, your fat, uh, I guess the, the, the systems that, that help with fat loss and L-carnitine is one way to do that. Uh, 
you know, L straight L-carnitine doesn't really, uh, you know, it's not really super bioavailable for, for, you know, these mitochondria to be shuttling fat, like we say. But if you're using Alcar or something, you know, something like that, you will, you know, you will get some sort of benefit. But taking a fat burner without dieting does not work. And you might get marginal benefits from a fat burner through appetite suppression while you're dieting. Um, but in turn, but what I try to formulate now is more fat optimization products that, you know, people that people may be lacking certain, certain elements in their, in their diet that this will help support, you know, fat loss and L-carnitine is one of those things. That we in terms of when we like supporting healthy metabolism. That's right. Sp supporting healthy metabolism. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so if we're looking at like glucose uh, disposal agents, these kind of things, it's, uh, they work really well in populations that have, you know, high, high blood glucose, high blood triglycerides, these kind of things. Um, but if I was going to recommend like, you know, a fat, a fat burner, um, or a fat loss agent, I would say, just get your, keep your omega threes up, keep those, those good, healthy fats in your body. So that's interesting. You say that though, but that'd be so counterintuitive to what anyone would think because they think by keeping their omega threes up, they're keeping the calories up slightly higher. But you think even maybe if someone had an extra 10 to 20 grams of high quality fats, that's going to offset the negative impact of the additional calories. Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, you're talking 90 calories, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And if anybody's worried about 90 calories, then we got some big issues on our hands. Right. Uh, but, but yeah, so, so in term, but in terms of, um, optimizing like, fat burning, yeah, you want, you want to make sure that all your systems are, are working well. It's not really so much like taking an exogenous supplement that's going to, that's going to, yeah, exactly. Right. But rather, but rather keep the inflammation low, get your triglycerides and cholesterol. So your, your blood lipids in check, because if you have high triglycerides and relatively high blood glucose, you're going to have a real hard time burning off the stuff you're eating because your body's already having trouble disposing of the glucose that's there. And it has, you have high triglycerides. So your liver's already pumping out a whole bunch of fats and whatnot into the, into the actual bloodstream. So that stuff has to get dealt with. So by promoting healthy blood uh, profiles, lipids and blood sugars, then you actually can see the benefits of, of weight loss. And that's one of the reasons I think why, and you probably see this too, a lot of people start out with a real slow, gradual weight loss. And then all of a sudden they'll get these like these massive bursts of, of loss in somewhere, you know, midway in the diet. So I, I see this a lot and I think it's normally first four weeks, you don't particularly visually don't tend to see much. And I think it's generally from like five to eight weeks, it's suddenly like someone's put the foot on the accelerator. Yep. And I think it's a it's a two pronged approach. The person's probably started to get into the right habits of things a little bit more. And secondly, I think, as you said, I think their ability to control their blood sugar levels is starting to improve a lot. Like I tend to advocate a lot with clients like a carbohydrate cycling diet yep. to try and improve that. And I think it probably takes about four weeks for it to suddenly starts kicking effect. And it's almost like, it's like if anyone's ever driven like an old Porsche, I don't know if you remember to brilliant cars. If anyone's driven an old, old Porsche, like, like a turbo lag, it's, I think it's, right. almost, it's yep. almost the same thing. It's like um, a, a fat loss lag, it suddenly uh, kicks in. Yeah, and you know what's funny too, uh, you, and, and clients will actually mention it. They'll yeah. say like, it feels like the diet's just started working. Probably the first four weeks, you've managed to get their blood lipids and blood sugars and everything under control. And because they're getting feedback, you know, some feedback from that um, slow feedback uh, with weight loss and looking a little better in the mirror, then they start pouring on the coals a little bit and then they stop eating the extra piece of dark chocolate and the glass of wine before they go to bed. And the turbo starts to wind and up And the turbo more. starts to wind up a little more, yeah. And now you're throwing nitrous on it, right? Yeah, and, yeah. That, and that's the beauty of it. And I think that's where, I think that's almost the, it's, you must see the same with the athletes you work with. Is sometimes you have to, there's a saying in terms of like, 
you have to like um, sell people what they need and give them what they want. And people don't want to wait the four weeks for the results. So you've almost got to try and sometimes draw them through that process and try and reassure them about doing the right habits and learning these right things. Whereas if you said to someone like, okay, the main thing we need to do to, for you to lose body fat is to get your blood sugar under control. They're not going to be interested. 100%. Their they're, they're doctor's been telling them that, yeah. them that for five years. Exactly. And it's it's funny because the uh, the whole the whole weight loss thing is so much more mental. And that's what you're kind of alluding to is, you know, mm. you got, so the coaching part of, of fat loss in, in, in my clients, at least is most concentrated at the very front end. And then they get into it and everything's good. And it's really neat. There's like this tail end because now they've lost like 70 pounds and they're really, really excited. And then you stop hearing from them. Right. And now it's, are they still like following it and they don't need me anymore or have they fallen off the wagon? And it's usually like a, for me, it's like about a 70, 30, like 70% of them have fallen off the wagon when I don't hear from them. But there's 30% of them saying like, you know, this is going great. And then you'll two years down the road and usually they're online. Right. And, and they're, they haven't shown up online for a while and everything. And then they send you that DM that says, listen, I gained like, you know, 75 pounds over COVID. Can you help me? But, but you're like, well, just do what we did last time. But the problem is they can't. So you got to come back to the coaching. And I think that's where it comes down to everything. I'm a big advocate of everything in my life with being coached by people to learn things. I think it's that thing for anyone listening and watching this to understand that I think one of the things that makes people see things through and stick to things is people don't want to look like a dick and like they want to let you down, they will let me down. And we inherently don't want to let other people down when we respect them and we're working with them. So one of the big things is sometimes we need to be um, reminded more than we need to be taught. We know what we need to do, but we just need to be pushed along in the right direction a bit. Yeah, and that's coaching. Mm. I, I believe that is coaching. Like most people know what they need to do. Um, they may not know how to do it, but they know what they need to do. And uh, they're, but and they're not doing it. Yeah, and, and it's it's funny too. And that's and that's tell you the truth. That's why you know even when I was you know bodybuilding, I knew what the hell I was doing, but I still had a coach. Because you know we were talking about denial earlier. That 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 comes into play a lot of times too, right? And, and not and, and in that case too, you, you don't just need a coach for for um, keeping you on keeping you straight, but you actually might be looking at yourself differently in the mirror and think that you're like falling apart, but you actually look better than you ever have. Like, how many? I'm sure you've done this. How many times have you ever had where you're like, man, I look like I look like crap today. I shouldn't be in this photo shoot. And then like two years later, you look at you like I looked awesome. I remember thinking to myself how horrible I looked in these pictures. And that's uh, this. It's, I'm laughing because it happens all the time. I look back through photos like. I know I tend to do it a lot when I'm flying. I look back through old photos and I'm like, oh, I was jacked here. Like, I want to look like right. that again. Yeah. At the time, I was like, oh, I felt like crap. I was like, I look a bit fat, whatever. And I think this is the most important thing. I think more when it comes to like health and fitness coaching, more than probably anything, is people understanding that your relationship with how you look will be dependent on your emotions in that given time and how you feel. So your decision making is in fact, in fact, uh, changed by how you emotionally feel, and it's driven by emotion rather than logic which is why it's very much better, in my opinion, to have someone from the outside of your own brain logically looking at the scenario and being like, okay, if I look at myself in this week, I trained legs and it sucked and I was really weak. I felt hungry and tired. I was like, from a coaching perspective, he probably needs more food for like a day maybe. Yeah. Um, but the person's in the shoes situation, trying to lose weight, they're like, fuck it, I've got to keep going, keep going. When a lot of the time, that's actually the wrong answer. And I think that's sometimes when you almost need someone on your shoulder to be like, mm, you might want to steer this way. A hundred percent. 
Yeah, that and that's uh, that's that's a great point. Um, you know, it's you start coaching the people and you have to really put the pedal on, like you said. Then they get in this cruise period, but then sometimes people actually go go like, they start losing weight and then they actually start cutting stuff out that you were telling them to eat. I had this problem with uh, one of my clients and she uh she lost about eighty five pounds uh, over the course of like you know the the uh, probably a six or seven month period. But um, she was losing weight way too fast for the amount of calories. I kept pumping calories in and she kept losing weight, like, like you know, four or five pounds a week. And then her hair started falling out. And I was like, aha, you're <laughs> actually not eating. Like, you know, and, uh, and, and so, so yeah, you know, in, in this realm, it's, it's such a psychological battle with yourself and bodybuilding epitomizes this, you know, and you tell people they look good and they're like, oh no, well, look at this. And they're pointing out all their flaws. Right. Um, it, it epitomizes this why you know coaching is so vital for people's success but we want to create people that are, can be independent if we want health we want people that can be independent so it's nice to, when we see people actually you know being able to take the lead themselves but we all need a little babysitter once in a while to kind of point out take a break or i also think there's an element of um there's something like i'm a big believer in terms of like you got a lot on your plate in terms of decision fatigue so for example, why I have other people advise me about training and nutrition as well, I obviously know what I'm doing, but it's sometimes like, I have so much of the shit going on, like the last thing I need to be stressing out about is like, should I add 25 grams of carbs this week or take 25 <laughs> off? Like, it's easier for like to be like, send a check in to someone and be like, okay, this is where I'm currently at. Um, I will have in my head in terms of like, okay, this is what I would do. I wanna see what they're gonna say. Yeah, absolutely. And, some, and sometimes you're pleasantly surprised because mm. you, you, you get something you didn't even think of trying. Mm. Because everybody's got a, their own little nuances, right? And, uh, you know, for, for me, like, I went on a really low-carbohydrate kick for a long time and realized, like, it was killing my performance, like, by, like, 25%. And it took a coach to, to come in and, and redo my diet and throw in an extra 100 carbs, grams of carbs a day. And it was the world of difference. And it actually didn't mean anything for, uh, you know, changing my physique for worse. And it almost comes back to what we start the podcast with in terms of cognitive bias, in terms of you doing that for a long time and it worked worked for you yeah. and that's what you did it probably took a bit you probably had a bit of resistance to changing oh absolutely right and then you do it and you get this massive increase in you know strength and power during your workouts and you're like all right so i'm only eating 400 calories more but my workouts are like 700 calories more intense right? yeah um we'll wrap that up there because i think it's a really good point to finish on uh in terms of people to find out more information check out obviously we're doing with prescript you've lent us this lovely studio for the day we're supposed to get in touch yeah, just uh, reach out to me on uh, on Instagram at drdn Jackson. Awesome. Uh, for everyone who enjoyed the podcast, please make sure that you leave a five star review on iTunes. Share it with a friend. Tag me and Dwayne on Instagram. We'll share it, and we'll see you next episode very very soon. Thanks.